0: Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lust, joined alongside Brendan Bell, our college sports business reporter. Do you like that title, Brendan?
1: I love it. I love it. College sports is what I love. So if I can be titled that, I will take it.
0: I think you are officially the youngest member of the Conduct Detrimental family. You have been pumping out articles talking about law school programs, pre law programs. You are a junior, right, at Auburn?
1: I'm going to be a senior.
0: Going so sure. you're rising rising senior I think is the right terminology yeah. right.
1: rising
2: senior
0: yeah no Brendan you've you've been uh tremendous behind the scenes and we thought we'd have you on here you know our main guest today we don't want to bury the lead Jason Stahl and Roxy McRae Gordon from the College Football Players Association we did promise a special guest our last episode and they did come through so we have them on and I thought you were the perfect person to have them on and then we're gonna talk a little bit of Formula One a little bit of a mix we. I think people that listen to the podcast know that I've been a, a, a Formula One convert. There is an interesting legal uh, situation brewing over there for anyone that's following it closely. That's the Oscar Piastri. We'll say driver holdout. I'm not exactly sure if there is American equivalent. We will get into it. And last but not least, breaking news that crossed our radar a couple minutes ago. PGA Tour slapped with a massive antitrust lawsuit. We are going to break that down as well with a special guest. John Nucci, longtime friend of the show, one of our other strong contributors in our Formula One segment, I should mention, Zach Bryson. So we got a bunch of contributors to the show. we got a deep bench on Conduct Detrimental, so lovely to have everybody on. Okay, so let's start in college football world. Brendan, I know you are fascinated with all things college football, and it is no shock at a school like Auburn, and SEC country, that is where your mind goes. So let's just kind of start here, a story that we, we touched upon a couple episodes ago, there was this whole kind of mess and saga. It was unclear what happened, rights and wrongs. There was all of a sudden this kind of inkling that there were football players at Penn State that were trying to mobilize the union, almost unlike in, like in the, uh, the dark of the night. They were trying to sneak this guy in, Jason Stahl, who I'd never heard of, and they were going to sneak him in. And I think he was kind of giving a presentation, allegedly, according to a number of reports, to these Penn State football players. Uh, and then the plan after that was trying to you know, negotiate on Penn State's behalf Using uh, the four year, you know, the quarterback with the team, uh, Sean Collins, to, to try to get some uh, movement going. And then what ended up happening, uh, I think, at least as the story goes, and we're going to have Jason on to explain his side of the story, but at least uh, you read enough reports, it looks like that players only meeting in which Jason Stahl was allegedly like smuggled in, you know, and uh, I guess without any administrators knowing, that meeting, which was supposed to be a players only meeting, a strength and conditioning coach was somehow came into the last five minutes of that presentation. And then I, I think, at least from my understanding, and, and Jason again can explain it, that that strength and conditioning coach let the cat out of the bag a little bit sooner than Jason and, and the Penn state players were ready to do. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really where it went. There was supposed to be this whole big thing at big 10 media day. And Jason Stoll allegedly spoke to uh, and Jason Stoll is, a, is the, one of the co-founders of this program. And, you know, he'll explain his uh, his role in his development of the progress or the program. But, you know, he he had the platform to speak with Kevin Warren. We'll see how much detail he wants to get into about that conversation. Kevin Warren, obviously the Big Ten commissioner, also a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, like all of a sudden it seemed like the inklings in the the heat of the night of like a Big Ten school trying to unionize. And then like you think back in our sports law history books and I'm like, huh, this sounds kind of familiar, right? A Big Ten school trying to unionize. So Brendan, uh, as our college sports historian, business sports reporter, whatever fancy title we want to give you. uh, You're a smart man here. What do you you see in the history of college sports that has any potential parallels to what we're dealing
2: with?
1: Yeah. So we actually saw this in 2015 when a group uh, from Northwestern led by Kane Coulter was denied the petition to unionize by the NLRB. However, as we know, that things are much different now in 2022 than they were in 2015. Now, Players have more power through NIL rights, the transfer portal, and social media, obviously. In addition, the highest level of college football is becoming more like professional sports every day. You know, we now have a a school from Los Angeles in the same conference as a school school from New Jersey. Uh, We now have uh, big-time television revenue. The Big Ten is expected to to sign a deal worth over a billion dollars in the next couple weeks. And uh, each member school in the Big Ten is expected to have over a hundred million annually in conference payouts. So that's going to generate a lot of questions. Like why shouldn't players get a, get a piece of that pie, you know, and beyond just the pay aspect of it, uh, why shouldn't players have a seat at the table when it comes to negotiated stuff, you know, like, like healthcare and all that stuff, because uh, players are the ones on the field. They are the ones putting in the work. I'm going to stop, uh, why- stop
0: you right there, Brendan, for a split second. Right. I, and I like at, at the end of the day, right. Like this is what you hit on. I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over it football, college football, you know, the cat's out of the bag. It's a billion dollar sport, right? Big 10 is about to sign a billion dollar television deal. So we can have all these conversations, which, and I'm happy to ask Jason the question, right? People in the background, and I've brought it up on the show before, you know, what are the optics of like, hey, football players are allowed to unionize. There's, I don't know who's putting out the narrative, but like there is a real world that like, you know, like we talked about it with UCLA on the, you know, a couple episodes ago that they are threatening or they were threatening to maybe canceling some of these non-revenue generating sports because they were so much in the red in terms of their, their school revenue. So, you know, I I think that's an important point here. You know, this piece of the pie, right? It's a increasingly larger, it's an exponentially larger pie than it was in 2015 and certainly a much larger piece of the pie than it was back with like the, uh, you know, the Oklahoma board of Regents case back in the eighties. So, that's why this conversation is all of a sudden very interesting. Obviously, player empowerment, which we're going to get a lot into over the course of this episode, you know, and maybe driver empowerment if we get to the Formula One stuff. But this piece of the pie is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's not a shock that right, that athletes are trying to find ways to mobilize and get that. So, I mean, Brandon, do you think this is doable? Or do you think it's a pipe dream that we're actually going to have a union?
1: Yeah, I mean, despite the fact that it seems inevitable that we will have one and that the players will get paid. Uh, it's extremely difficult to pull off. You know, even in pro sports, we see a lot of division in between the rank and file players and the star players. You know, and when you when you talk about college football, you multiply that by a thousand. You know, you've got you got eighty five scholarship players from sixty five Power Five schools, and you have one hundred and thirty one FPS schools, and that's not even including you know FCS schools like North Dakota State and D two and D three schools. So, getting buy in and agreement from all of that all of that group of players, um, that's extremely difficult. And part of the reason why it hasn't happened yet.
0: Um, <laughs> Brandon, you, you're like an encyclopedia, my friend. I, I, always, I always enjoy having you on and like, you know, at some point I'm going to check your driver's license. Cause I'm not really convinced that you're a college student. Cause you're far smarter than I was, uh, at this age. I'm scared to ask. How old are you, Brandon?
1: I am 21.
0: Okay. Like are you actually 21 or are you like 20 and a
1: half? I'm 21. Yeah. December 2000. So. Almost 22.
0: You're in a unique situation to answer this question. Um, You know, people have this conversation all the time. Like, right. If you, if you can go to war, why can't you have a drink? Right. If you can go to war, like, <laughs> why can't you like bet on sports in certain states? People are going to have those, kinds. Right. which are fine. What What's difficult here, which, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to ask Jason that I have no problem asking Jason and Roxy about it. You know, we we are putting college athletes in a position that they've never been in before to play the role of like the beacon of the whole industry, right? So, who is going to be the first athlete, right? You can have guys like Jason who are really educated, and you know, I've, I've read a lot what Jason's been putting out there. Jason's a you know a university professor once upon a time, so obviously you know a smart guy. And behind the scenes, Roxy was leading uh, you know movement with NFL wives, so she's mobilizing people in her own right. But you're still going to require athletes to be the face of that movement. So, Brandon, you're 21 years old, right? We ask some like J.C. Treader over in the NFL; he's the head of the NFL Players Association. Grown man, right? Guys making lots of money. These athletes in the college sports space have never, have never done that. So, you know, like I don't know. I took public speaking when I was in college. Like I wasn't really that comfortable doing it. I've obviously I'd like to think I've gotten better at it in my uh, ripe old age of 34. But you're putting people in these positions to, you know, collectively bargain against uh, like the Big Ten or against Penn State. It's it's a unique bird. We just haven't seen you know um, athletes at such a young age being put in that situation. Not to say that they shouldn't be. But it's kind of a unique animal, so I'm gonna uh, put on this hypothetical hat. As you know, I'm a professor at sports sports law in your law school. I like to, you know, play some things out, some hypotheticals, right? We at this point, we have uh, in the NFL, we have 32 NFL teams, and we have players on all of those teams. I talk about J.C. Treader over with, um, you know, the NFL. He's mobilizing all these athletes that are not being divided amongst team lines. They're just the NFL Players Association. Every player is represented right? We have an interesting situation at college and I don't know what it'll look like. And, you know, Jason is going to put out a lot of literature and I'm sure he's going to be behind the scenes working on this and working on people's understanding of how this is supposed to work at the conference level with different conference commissioners. How does one, players at one school and one sport within that one school, what does a union like that even look like? It's just a foreign concept to sports, you know, like it's almost like if the Yankees, Unionized, it's a bad example, but let's just say the Yankees by themselves, the Yankees players were within their own sect of the Major League Baseball Players Association, like, and they wanted different things than the rest of the union wanted. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure what that would look like. Not, not say it's good or it's bad, it's just different. And if you have some unionized schools in the Big Ten and other ones that are not, how does the, the television payout differ among schools? Does it differ at all? Does the you know, athletic department at the end of the day ask to be paid more money because? certain percentage of that is going to the student athletes and not to the school. So maybe some unanswerable questions, but Brendan, you know, I I kind of praise this to you. I mean, are you in a position to 21 years of age? Do you think you could be the head of, uh, you know, the Auburn Players Association? Do you think you think you're capable of doing it? I ask that completely honestly. You're one of the smarter 21-year-olds I know, so
1: maybe you could. While I would love to be a part of that, I could not do that on my own, especially when you factor in how many, how much hours these guys put in to practice, to school, to weightlifting. I mean, even during, even in the off season, these guys, you know, work extremely hard. And if you know, like I know certain athletes on Auburn's campus and, you know, they don't have a lot of free time. So the concept of bringing together an entire, even, even just their own team is extremely difficult. And so you know that's what that's what, but that's where it's going to have to come from. Players are going to have to take the role in this, and uh, you know, be the driving force. And you know, it's why it hasn't happened yet, and it's why it probably won't happen without extensive, you know, help from people like Jason.
0: Excellent point. So let's let's leave it here. Right, we're going to ask Jason about how his recruiting efforts have gone to recruit players across the country. Certainly, you know, all, all news is good news. So maybe as part of, uh, you know, the CFBPA is saying, hey, this didn't go as well as we thought at Penn State, but there's always a silver lining. Everybody knows about the CFBPA in college sports circles. Everyone knows that the first, you know, organization to help athletes sniff the unionization landscape was the CFBPA And I, you know, I implore everyone to check out their website, you know, and just hit Google College Football Players Association. You could see they have a slow model built out to really work on this. So, you know, I'm, I'm certainly happy to bring different voices on to talk about their platforms. And I think an entity like we, you know, what do we do in Conduct Detriment that we just educate you guys on different trends. What is Jason doing behind the scenes? And he's educating players on, you know, the extent of television deals and whatnot. So I, you know, and their rights as a potential union. So I don't think there's any problem with having a voice like that on. And, you know, we're, we're always listening to different perspectives, all shapes and sizes. So with that said, let us turn it over to Jason Stoll and Roxy McCray-Gordon of the College Football Players Association. A special guests for Conduct Detrimental today, two special guests, Jason Stahl and Roxanne McCray Gordon of the College Football Players Association. Pleasure to have you guys on the show. Great to be here.
2: Great to be here. Thank you. So I am
0: probably not alone. Your uh, your company or corporation, entity, whatever you want to call it, popped across my radar from some of the news coming out of Penn State in the Big Ten Media Day. So as I started digging into um, what you guys stood for, I, I realized I'm like this is you know a group that we should have on the show. And as our listeners know, we talk a lot about the unionization conversation that's coming around the corner. And I've alluded to the fact that uh, it's just a matter of when, not if. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, a story, you know, that went around the college sports space that we, you know, have been talking about. Um, you know, I found an organization that is seemingly at the cutting edge in the forefront of these conversations. So I don't want to get into the Penn State Big Ten stuff yet. I do want to get there eventually, but I want to hear a little bit about how the organization got started and a little bit about both of your backgrounds. So the floor is yours. Tell us, uh, you know, wh-
3: wherever way you want to take it. Well, I'll go ahead and start. You know, I was, I guess, broadly kind of considered a sort of athlete advocate, but I wasn't really known. I was sort of working behind the scenes. I was a professor at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I had a lot of football players in my classroom, was teaching them. I had a vague idea maybe around 2014 that I wanted to write a book about this sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, the true lives of the D1 college football player. Talk with these guys about, hey, would you want to do interviews for a book like this? And, you know, they seemed open to it. So basically started talking to them. I became a real advocate as a whistleblower at the University of Minnesota, like from 2017 through 2020 internally. Football coach here, I thought was doing a lot of bad things. Um, and I was trying to report these things. Essentially lost my job over this in the middle of pandemic, sort of summer 2020. I kind of strike out on my own. With the vague idea, not vague, but I wanted to kind of report what I knew at the University of Minnesota, advocate for these football players sort of on the outside of the institution. And at the same time, you had college football players nationwide who were sort of rising up in the middle of COVID and basically saying, why are we the only students on campus? Well, we all knew why that was the case, right? And this sort of crystallized the We Are United movement. And one of their demands was the creation of a college football players association. And I was like, yeah, this is a great idea. Somebody should do this. It's exactly what's needed, right? I didn't think I was going to be the person to do it, though, If quite frankly. I mean, I, I thought, oh, yeah, there'll be a group of former players that take this up. And then nobody did. And so, you know, my in- research is in institution building. I'm a political historian by training. I know and have studied how to create new institutions. And so I thought, well, I can do this. And also, you know, I, I sort of understand the realities of college football as an advocate now for five, six years. And yeah, I think I can do this and sort of wrote about it for about a year and then just got some supporters together summer of 2021 and launched the institution. So we just had our one year anniversary and yeah, that was the sort of germination of the whole thing. Roxy, uh, Roxy and I met sometime in the fall of 21, I think was our first connection and we really just kind of hit it off from the jump. I think our visions really aligned. And, you know, eventually I asked her to become president, but I'll let her kind of speak to where she picked up with us in that, you know, fall of 21. Roxanne, I'm going to, rock. can we go with Roxanne or Roxy? Roxy. Is
2: perfect. I like Roxy.
3: I like Roxy. <laughs> um, Thank
0: you. You know, so Jason, I, you know, I think your background's tremendous and, and Roxy, where you bring an interesting perspective and I want to hear how you guys kind of came together. But, you know, you, you developed and organized NFL wives for a change. So you have Jason, you on the college side, you have, uh, you know, Roxy, you on the, uh, on the pro side. And obviously a specific focus uh, seems like on football players, which you know, we, we've had this conversation uh, on our show that when the unionization efforts happen, I predicted, it's not such a bold prediction for anyone that's in the space, but the revenue generating sports are football at the college sports level and basketball. So bold prediction, uh, I take, I'm like, I don't know, the football schools and basketball schools are going to unionize first, and they're probably going to unionize independent of those other sports within their banner. So I think it's a savvy move to just focus on football, if that's if that's what the focus is. But I could take a gather just by the acronym of your organization, CFPPA, that that's probably in mind. But, you know, Rox, I'll let you speak to that and, and also speak, you know, just uh, you know, how you and Jason uh, got got together on this.
2: Sure, sure. Jason reached out to me um, on Twitter, and when I start researching what he's been doing, It was like a match made in heaven because here we have a person that's fighting for the rights of college players and i'm fighting for the rights of retired you know injured football players so we had so much in common our first conversation was gosh, probably two hours and we're on the same page with everything just one at the professional level one at the college level and i'm so familiar with what happens in college sports because i myself was a collegiate athlete i ran track my husband played football at Stanford. And I remember what it was like for him being a college student, having to send the little bit of money he would get each month home to um, his family because he grew up, you know, with little means. So I would watch these guys just suffer. Unless you came from a family of means, you would just really be struggling. And here you have the universities making tons of money off the program. So I instantly related to what was going on. In my work, I've been doing for NFL wives for change. It's a, a large network of wives, and you know, we started fighting for the rights of our our husbands who are injured, concussion damage, and we were being treated unfairly in a concussion settlement. And we noticed a trend, you know, coast to coast of what was going on and what was happening. Everyone was being denied for these reasons that they shouldn't be denied, although all these men were suffering from cognitive damage. So that's how that started, and you know, we we basically exposed the race norming which you know everybody's followed that and the nfl removed the race norming from the concussion settlement now um, we have even formed an advisory panel for the concussion settlement which will be announced soon um, in the press release so that's how jason and i met and this work is a work work is after my own heart and i i when I see billions of dollars being made and these athletes are still like not able to barely feed themselves, it's just not right. It's unbalanced. I think
0: that's a a good place to take this. And, you know, uh, in, in preparing for our conversation, Brendan and I were, we're talking over, right? You guys have a, a system in place to have members, uh, have different players sign up for your organization. So uh, I can imagine right in the NIL space, there is no shortage of, of people with educational platforms. So, but Brendan, I'll, I'll turn it to you. you. You certainly had a good question. I'm, I'm curious of, of Jason and Rox's answer to this. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So we've kind of heard, there's kind of been a lot of rhetoric about how, you know, unionization of players is inevitable. And uh, it'll happen eventually, but the concept of bringing a ton of players together from all across the country, from different conferences and backgrounds, is obviously a lot easier said than done. So, what what's your strategy to bring all these players together into kind of one one cord and together uh, to to form what is the best you know strategy for reuniting college football players?
3: So, I think you know the tactic we've taken here is to create an institution which legally, it is not classified as a union, right? So we are a membership-driven, membership-based players association, right? The idea here being we got to try to find a way, we're organizers, right? We have to try to find a way to organize this kind of mass of humanity, right? It's at once once your strength, but as you just said, Brendan, it is at once the weakness too, right? You have I mean, how many how many college football programs are in this country? If you count all levels, it's over 900, right? You're talking tens of the 80,000, let's say, current college football players with a subset being in the power five then, let's say. So yeah, you're talking about this massive humanity. So the way we are kind of tackling this problem is to say, let's create a membership-driven players association, sort of national community of college football players, past, present, and future. So we have three membership categories, high school player, current college player, former college player. And we think then with people coming to us and us trying to drive those memberships membership numbers higher, trying to get people to understand what we're doing, then that can be a bridge to unionization, right? Where okay, you get somebody to become a member, you get somebody who outreaches and says, "Oh yeah, we want to participate in some type of action like we saw at Penn State, right?" That then that can be the stepping stone to something bigger, whether it's unionizing the entire entire power five or what have you, right? Yet, I think we have a platform, which now has six planks and is probably about to add a seventh, that is open enough and I think kind of supple enough to try to achieve improvement in the lives of college football players, even short of unionization, right? Because- We know that that is the hardest goal for all the reasons you just correctly set forward, Brendan. I think um, we then want to be able to show, well, you can achieve all sorts of victories and all sorts of positive change even before we get to that thing, which I think is inevitable and I do think will happen. But we would like to show that an institution could do a lot that would be short of that sort of massive end goal. Right, if that makes sense.
0: I think that's probably a, a good transition here, and uh, you know, we're we're people. I think for for better for worse, people found out about you on a national platform with the you know your involvement with Penn State, uh, and then what happened or what didn't happen at Big Ten media. You guys can uh, certainly have the platform to clear up the record of any type of uh, misinformation or anything that's going on out there. What I think is undisputed is that there were uh, and I think still are members of the Penn State football team that are associated with the organization and pay annual dues and or getting the education, you know, that, that you would normally get as a, an organization of that sort. So, you know, I, I think this is a good place to, to talk about it. And it's an important issue. Can you talk about a little bit, to Brennan's point, but specifically with respect to Penn State, how the, you know, the links started to be drawn with Penn State. And I don't know, I, when I was reading the, the articles on, on the story, you know, this sneaking into the Penn State facility, I don't know, it seems like something right out of a movie, but I'd love to hear it right from, uh, you know, the source as to how that unfolded and how to separate fact from fiction.
3: Yeah, I mean, so I think it, you know, there is an element obviously of it that um yeah, I, I hear you saying so it, it feels sort of straight out of movie now that I've actually lived it, right? And I think, especially when it doesn't go the way you kind of think or expect it might go, right? It takes this very different turn, um, which I wouldn't characterize as bad or good, right? I, I don't look at things in that way. The way I look at things is look, we had an opportunity here. We have four a fourth-year starting quarterback and Sean Clifford. Sean and I had had one and a half, two months of conversation before I even came to campus, right? Um, I sort of said, okay, this is what's been afforded to us, right? You don't have your, you know, I think people sort of assume, oh, why didn't they, Union, attempt to do this at Northwestern? I mean, I want to tell folks here now, that's not how this works, right? You don't get, like, a, a, your choice of something. We had Sean came to us evaluated the situation and we thought yeah let's let's give this a go um we did have a two-pronged strategy in place we were going to try to raise things to kind of the big 10 level um if we thought well if we could create a leadership committee across all big 10 schools i we, we might be able to force the conference to the table uh, voluntarily i say force voluntarily but you know bring them to the table voluntarily to talk about uh three platform planks that we would put together And if that didn't happen, then we would try to go the Union route for the entire Big Ten, right? And really try to kind of organize through the season, get guys to understand what we're doing. Now, this sort of clandestine operation to pull this off, right? I think this is really just a matter of, okay, what's afforded to you in the summer? a little more time. Guys have a tiny bit more time to talk to you. Coaches aren't around as much, at least in July. But even that, you know, there were coaches there. These guys were working their butts off in the middle of the summer, right? And so, yeah, we did try to have honest and meaningful conversations with guys, you know, kind of behind the scenes. Now, we had always intended to tell the coach and the athletic director about 24 to 48 hours before our campaign launched. And so they would have found out anyway. Right. It's not like we were going to hide it from them forever. Right. Players all agreed. Yeah, let's tell them 24 to 48 hours in advance. It just ended up being that they probably got it four days in advance instead of two days in advance. Right. Maybe we would have been in the same place at the end of the day as we ended up, which is the whole thing kind of going sideways. and Sean Clifford going obviously in a different direction. But yeah, you know, Dan, as you said, we do we still do have members of Penn State. I'm letting things cool off there for now. We had members who have dropped off for sure, right? I think once our our sole leader sort of, you know, went a different direction, then yeah, we had other members drop off. And yeah, so I think we'll continue to evaluate things at Penn State. But obviously, this campaign has raised our level of notoriety, I think, to a new level. And I think people such as yourself and hopefully you know we know other players kind of know who we are now in a new way and that's important too.
0: Where I kind of come out on this and and Sean Clifford I've read the comments attributed to him and and you know the the relationship that you guys had it seems like you guys got pretty close in the lead up to whatever whatever this was right so I think it's a matter of again not not to not a really hot take it's a matter of if not when and really for particular purposes of this conversation it's a matter of who wants to be that individual right You could talk about you know even a guy like Colin Kaepernick at the NFL level he stood up for something he believed in and he is now a name in the space for being an advocate. You can talk about a guy like LeBron James right he's kind of uh, you know the face of the player empowerment or at the the NBA space. Brandon, I'll, I'll kick it to you I, I think that's kind of a, a good place to take this so I, I don't know I don't know who that next person is but maybe Roxy I mean maybe I don't know Brandon, go ahead.
1: Yeah, so in 2015, we saw the NRL be Northwestern's petition to unionize. And I think times are so different now than they are then. Obviously, there was no NIL back then. There wasn't a transfer portal, a one-time transfer back then. And there's obviously been a lot more shift towards, you know, players being empowered. So I'm curious if you guys feel like the environment today, you know, with, with Alston, you know, we heard Brett Kavanaugh's, uh, in his response, we saw a pretty a pretty demonstrative, you know, attention towards players' rights and how, you know, what the NCAA does is not above the law. So do you guys feel like that what you're doing is more apt to be successful now? And, like, do you think the current environment lends more favorable to the concept of players, you know, know, forming a more successful, you know, union and ability to come together?
2: Basically, these coaches are paid, everyone knows, handsomely off – these young men playing football for these organizations and forming any type of union or organization takes away the illusion of their power. It takes away some of their control and the control is what they use for, you know, decades and decades to for profit for these programs. So having anything that takes away from their power is a problem for them. And I think that that, those are the the hurdles that we're coming up against but I think now is the time for change with everything that's going on. It's the perfect time for change.
0: And, and I'll kind of point out one thing here, right? And we, we've all kind of hitting it in different levels. It's it's the perfect time for change. And Jason, I, I couldn't help but like in your story, right? Who is going to be the person to help mobilize these efforts? One, one story that, that uh, I think went under the radar in the middle of like, the COVID cancellation stuff and back and forth, who's going to cancel, be it the Big 10 or the Pac-12 or the you know, Big 12. There, there was a movement that was taking place on the West Coast. There were these Pac-12 players that were trying to unionize, trying to organize, and they made demands that essentially said, we want a piece of the revenue pie. We want uh, health benefits. And I'm like, and, and I don't know, with whatever version of like a Friday news dump, it just, there was so many crazy stories going on with COVID. I'm like, that one got lost. So as um, you know, last year, really I think towards the end of last year, there were comments from Jennifer Abruzzo, the, the uh, general counsel for the NLRB. And, you know, she said essentially that the term student athlete is an inappropriate term to athletes appear to us to be employees and, you know, essentially inviting someone to take the challenge. So that was like September. And I'm sitting here, you know, I'm, I'm in New York. I'm like, I don't know who wants to take this challenge. It seems to be there's some people on the West Coast that want to take this up. Um, and Jason has you and I were talking offline. It seems like you have membership and, and leaders across the country, across all different time zones. so I don't know, maybe speak to that. How, how far does the, the CFPPA go? Is it northeast? Is it Big Ten based or is it really go nationwide, coast to coast?
3: I think it has to be nationwide, coast to coast. And it has to be the strength is in the numbers. Like I think with the athletes rights or sort of athlete empowerment. Movement has lacked is a sustained base of actually existing athletes. And that's what we're trying to create here. It has a top of the movement, has all of us lawyer, you know, lawyers, academics, and people who head up nonprofits and so forth. But with the idea, what we're trying to do is to create a base, right? The grassroots. We're trying to organize the athletes themselves. And we think the bigger that base, the better. Now, if we're talking about things like revenue sharing, though, we're primarily talking about power five we're primarily talking about any teams that benefit from these massive media contracts right that's different than let's say the needs of a college football player who plays at a juco in california right so but we want to speak to all of those people now th- to the these questions of like i totally agree with everything roxy just says i do think now is different than let's say back in eight years ago at northwestern okay now some things have to but some things do remain the same here so i think Like we went out to Penn State and yeah, Sean and I did develop a pretty close relationship. I thought that relationship would hold up. It ended up not being the case. I think, you know, one of the ways I wanted to try to make it hold up and learn from I think the fault, you know, some of the faults of the Northwestern campaign was to have at least two leaders, not just one, right? If you're gonna do one school, you gotta have at least two leaders. Well. Sean's, one of his best friends who had to take a medical retirement, his name is Journey Brown. Journey was supposed to be the second leader on the campaign. And by Sean's telling, was very excited about doing so. And by the time I got out there, though, Journey had to take some trip out of town. And so we had this kind of this idea of like, oh, you it's know, there's going to be two leaders, not one. And it's going to solve the problem of everyone sort of you know, focusing on this one person, right? And that ended up not being the case because we didn't have our second leader and then we couldn't develop a second leader. I really, really tried. So I think that's one of the ways you can solve the problem. The other main problem we're up against is like as much as things have changed, I think some things remain the same. The utter lack of, I think, education, just information that college football players have about their industry is you know, breathtaking. And I think they're purposely kept sheltered from relevant information about their lives, about their work lives. But they're also just don't have enough time to kind of like, who is all all these things you mentioned, the NLRB, Alston, Jennifer Abruzzo, everybody here knows what we're talking about when we say those things. The football players don't, they really don't. I only two Football players on the whole Penn State team even knew that there was a Big Ten media rights deal currently being negotiated, right? They didn't even know how much that media rights deal was for until I told them, and they were shocked. So there's real a real level of education here and we think in terms of organizing players into this huge membership base, the education component is going to be key because they're never going to be able to unionize unless they understand and are educated in the circumstances of their workplace right and that is a real project we're going to be taking up for the remainder of the year because they got to understand everything you just talked about. NLRB, Alston, Abruzzo, the media rights contract, because right now they don't understand those things.
1: We often hear that Kevin and the commissioner of the Big Ten, and Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, are two of the most powerful, if not the most powerful people in college football. How important do you feel like it is to form relationships with them as we move forward? And we, I think it's I think it would be wise for them to be proactive instead of reactive to all this stuff that eventually I think will come. And I think everyone thinks that will come eventually.
3: I think it's very important. I don't consider myself a bomb thrower organizer. I think, you know, I tend to get along with most people when I when I talk with them. And I think in this type of work, you have to show yourself as being open to different conversations with different people, including the, the powers that be. And I would obviously include those two individuals in that category. You know, Kevin and, Kevin Warren and I did have an hour long conversation and in advance of Big Ten Media Days. And obviously we ended up, you know, things didn't go the way we'd hoped in terms of media days themselves. But yeah, I thought, I thought we had a great conversation. And I think he did too, if I read enough media at this point. And I think there's openness to continue to try to move the ball forward on improving the lives of college football players in whatever form that needs to take. But if we get to the point where it's obvious that, you know, well, maybe this person just doesn't want to work with us voluntarily, so then obviously we go in a different direction, that would you know, legally bind them to coming to, you know, coming to the table and working out a CBA.
0: Right? I guess I have this question for, you know, Roxy, Jason, whoever wants to take it. The NIL conversation, again, we've, our listeners of our show know where we're going with it, but it's, it's, you know, it's bipartisan. Everybody likes getting athletes paid. It's pretty simple. The, the money is not t- being taken from Peter to pay Paul. The boosters are just kind of, in a lack of a better term, redirecting the money instead of going to the school and then maybe under the table to the athletes. It's going directly from the boosters, um, you know, the collectives to the athletes. And those are my words, not anybody else's, but it, it's not really anything that's tr- really changing the economics of college sports, at least as far as I can tell. Now, the union conversation is a little bit of a different conversation, right? Because you, in theory, are just like a, an NFL PA would organize, you know, and they're arguing against the league in a CBA negotiation. They're asking for a piece of the television pie because they are the product that's being put on and they're earning that money. So when you have any type of CBA negotiation, that's the first thing that they argue about. They argue about the piece of the pie and that's a revenue pie. So, you know, Roxy, Jason, what do you what do you guys have to say when someone says, hey, these union conversations, a football union is going to harm the non-revenue generating sports, those Olympic sports? What do you guys have to say to
3: that audience? I mean, my counter to that is, I mean, I guess it's threefold or twofold, at least. We're talking about the media contracts, right? The Big Ten is about to triple their media rights revenue. Triple, okay? If anybody would suggest that college football players earning a decent wage is somehow going to necessitate cutting sports, cutting women's sports, when you're tripling the media revenue, I think that is completely absurd. Just absolutely absurd, right? Number two, this is an industry that is in need of rationalization, like just sort of capitalist rationality, right? Because right now it's like, oh, let's just hire 100 administrators for the football program, be it coaches or whoever else. Yes, that is going to need to be dialed back. Of course it is, because it's absurd as well, right? So introducing just the idea that you pay the workers that generate the media rights revenue is, you know, those two things I think are good then to come from this. Now, third, we are about, you know, at some point here in the near future, we're about, we'll announce a public partnership with a women's college players association to show that we absolutely do not want to see any sports be cut. Absolutely not. And the, you know, showing this sort of um, I think alliance among all college athletes to better the lives of everyone is going to be truly important here to then showcase and push back against, I think, those false, ugly arguments regarding, you know, if, if college football players make a decent wage because, you know, they're televised and generate billions of dollars of wealth. Oh, now we need to cut women's gymnastics or something, right? I mean, it's just absurd.
0: That was as well articulated as, as I've ever heard anybody make that point. And, I'm, and I wasn't, I didn't mean anything when I asked it. I just, you know, there is a, is a, very clear segment of the audience that thinks that. Well, we have like uh, you know a minute or so left. Roxy, I want to give you the final word here as we as we close the book on this. What do you sure, think I, on the, the issue of unions and college sports moving forward? Where, where do you think this goes?
2: I absolutely would echo what Jason has just explained in great detail. I don't see the problem with taking care of players, the wellness and health of players. I don't understand why it's even a discussion, to be honest with you, with the amount of revenue tripling What is wrong with paying players also making sure they're healthy and well? I I don't understand that they're there who are generating the revenue for the universities. Why not look after them for once? You know, so.
0: Yeah. As we're running short on time here, you know, I I implore everyone to check out uh, their website, just Google them college football players association. You guys, I think have a, a good model set out to slowly build and slowly grow. And I think you are really behind an important movement here. If anything, just to educate the players. And that's, what we do on our show, we educate everybody. Uh, we have no dog in the race. We just want everybody uh, to have a platform to speak uh, you know, speak their minds. Jason, Roxy, thank you so much for joining us. You've been excellent. We appreciate all your time today.
2: Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Brandon. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for having us on,
0: guys. Thank, thank you. you. So that was Jason Stahl and Roxy McCray-Gordon of the College Football Players Association. For more information, head to cfbpa.org. You know, obviously they, they hit on a lot of points. I think I was really most interested. um, I'm just being candid. I didn't know what Jason's response was going to be to like the, the outside people that say that the college football union is going to ruin the other sports. I've heard it. Right. I I hear it. And I think it's a interesting observation to Jason's point. He's basically saying, let's call the schools bluff. Let's see if they really do cancel wrestling and swimming and golf. And I think that's right. You know, Brendan, to our conversation, if the pie is as big as we all think it is like, I don't know like maybe he's right maybe he's right that the college athletes can you know football players and basketball players can get paid because of the revenue generating athletes and there's still enough to go around to the other sports maybe you just don't have bloated administrator salaries and random people getting paid to do god knows what and they're just on the website doing who knows what right like we've gone on the show before and we've said what is what is the nca even doing at this point they're not involved in the nil era right like you know, maybe, and maybe that's Jason's point. Maybe he just thinks that there's no-show jobs, and I'm not saying this, and I'm not sure if Jason's saying it, but maybe he's saying that these, you know, athletic departments and these the NCA can get a little more lean and mean, and that money can just be splintered around or sprinkled around to keep these other sports afloat. But um, I, I meant it when I said it. I, I have never heard anyone articulate that point and that defense of that point quite as well uh, as Jason did. Brandon, your thoughts? Any any takeaways?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really pressing question because that's the number one thing people say when it comes to paying football and basketball players that the other sports are going to suffer. When if you really look at it and you really look at what goes on on a campus in terms of, you know, the revenue that comes in, you have facilities popping up, you have coaches getting excesses of $10 million per year, you have uh, recruiting budgets that exceed $1 million, $2 million, and It would be a really tough sell, especially in the SEC and Big Ten these days where the revenues from TV deals are going through the roof to say that you'd have to cut other sports. Uh, Whether or not that would apply to, you know, even the lower power five conferences who are not far behind the SEC and Big Ten right now and definitely the group of five. I think that's more of a pressing question for them. But in terms of the SEC and Big Ten, I still think there's a lot there. And obviously, I don't know, know that for sure. And I'm not inside. I don't have the books on all these athletic departments, you know, budgets. It would be a really tough sell for me to say that, you know, you know, baseball and gymnastics and swimming and tennis have to go if college football players start getting paid.
0: I imagine there's some baseball teams that do make revenue, uh, you know, I, I Oh I, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Definitely yeah so in any, too, especially in SEC country, I mean, in the you know.
1: SEC, I, I happen to be a very passionate college baseball fan. And there are a few, I mean, LSU is one, Arkansas is one, Mississippi state, Ole Miss. Those are kind of the four that come up the most, but it is very, they're few and far between and, uh, baseball is growing. Um, just on, if we're going to talk about that sport, but, uh, it, it's not even close to football.
0: Well, my friends over in Nebraska are big college baseball fans. Uh, and shout out to my friends over in Omaha, Nebraska. Okay, so let us move on. This is a hard pivot, but talk about the player empowerment era. I did a half joke about it, the driver empowerment era. So we, we pride ourselves. We talk a lot of college sports. We talk a lot of football, basketball, pro sports. But I've always wanted this show, at least in my head, right? Dan Wallach is the sports betting guru. He's, you know, that's his thing. If I have a thing, I just like to talk about a lot of sports and maybe that's my ADHD brain, but I follow sports of all shapes and sizes sometimes and read a lot of the time. I do find myself wagering on sports. It is legal in New York. We can talk about that, but and I don't want to you know, bury it too much, but I, I love Formula One. I love waking up Saturday mornings, watching qualifying, watching the race Sunday morning because it's usually in a you know, different country, with different time zone. So I watch a lot of Formula One. Now, when a legal saga on Formula One pops up, I don't know if our audience is ready for it, but listen, just trust me here. We go. We, da- we went down the, re- the weeds of the Super League symposium together about a year ago this time, and uh, it was one of our most download episodes of all time. And I know most of you are not soccer fans, so just hear me out here. An interesting dispute. So I'm going to try to lay it out. Brendan, Formula One fan? Are you a Formula One fan?
1: Auto racing fan? I, I'll be frank here. I have never watched anything related to Formula One, but I, don't I know, understand that. I understand that it's a growing trend, and that Netflix series apparently grew through the popularity of it. So I'm interested to hear what he has to say.
0: You are an absolute liar. You have no concept of what I'm talking about. Have you not? You've never seen a Netflix series. You just know what it is, kind of.
1: I have. I have not. No, yeah. I have not. But I, I'm aware of it. I'm aware of it, but I have not.
0: You have a little bit of homework because we talked about the Kyler Murray homework clause the last couple episodes. <laughs> I ask you
1: yeah. to watch
0: one episode, just one. That's it. Yeah. Can you watch one episode? Yeah,
1: I, I don't. It doesn't have to be four hours a week.
0: <laughs> no. Well, no. Just 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 give me one episode. And If you don't like it, you can tell me next time you're on there. You okay. hated it, but everyone I've recommended it to has enjoyed it. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the saga before we bring Zach on. And Zach again is a two L over at Elon University. Really smart guys. Really, you know, putting out a lot of content, a lot of articles on the Formula One space. So you know, I don't want to bury it because we're going to talk about it with Zach. But there's a basically the hottest prospect in Formula One. Was called up to the majors, right, by his team, and he's basically saying, "Yeah, I know you guys are calling me up, but uh, I am not going to play for you." So, in our American sports, I, I can't even think of it in any sport in our in the world where a top prospect has been groomed by a particular team by a particular organization, and they've put a lot of energy and you know whatever development developing a guy. It's different from like a James Harden who might demand a trade. He's a pro. He's getting paid millions of dollars. I've never heard someone doing this who has not drove it a minute in a Formula One car, who is essentially demanding a trade and asking his way out of town. So interesting holdout scenario, interesting contractual ramifications. So we will bring Zach Bryson on to explain his article on the website and really wherever we go from here in the Formula One world. It's an interesting uh, international legal dispute. We will try to break it down in as less complicated as lingo as we possibly can. Brendan, buckle up. We're getting into some auto racing and some Formula One. Zach Bryson will join us now. Special guest on Conduct Detrimental, Zach Bryson, a second-year law student at Elon University School of Law, friend of uh, the show Hannah Valenti, and uh, one of the uh, substantial contributors to ConductDetrimental.com. You're becoming the auto racing guy, Zach. Pleasure to have you on, buddy.
4: Pleasure to be here.
0: Okay, so uh, we we pride ourselves in covering anything and everything at the intersection of sports and law. Uh, of late, it's been uh, you know our shows have been pretty college sports heavy, pretty you know pro football heavy, and I'm like. You know, I am a Formula One guy. I watch qualifying. I watch the races every Sunday. We're in the middle of our summer break. And a story popped across my radar, courtesy of you, Zach, and a lot of people in our DMs asking about it. So I figured, why not? If we need a Formula One expert. Why not bring you on? You're the one that, that had this lovely article on the site. OK, so uh, this is just the normal thing that people have to say on a, you know podcasts that aren't following Formula One. If you have not watched Drive to Survive, I recommended it on uh, this podcast many times. It is my favorite Netflix show. Hard stop, there are no qualifiers on it. It is my favorite show. Um, It is basically hard knocks like for NFL, except they're chronicling every team simultaneously and taking the best storylines of the season. So even if you are not a fan of auto racing, which I was not, you can just really love the show. So in any event, fast forward, okay. The general setup of Formula One, there are 10 teams and there are two driver spots per team. It's Not like the NFL where there's like these huge bloated rosters of 50 men and or basketball is 12 men. It's a really hard, it's really hard to get a driver, you know, Formula One driver seat. So what we had happen this past week, and it set off a whirlwind chain of events, very similar to conference realignment or you know, NBA free agency dominoes or usually baseball hot stove dominoes. You had Sebastian Vettel, one of the greatest drivers in the sports history, retire. He's out. So all of a sudden, one seat has opened up. So just follow me here. Fernando Alonso, another former, you know, former World champion winner, you know, someone that's won the championship of sport. He takes his seat at a, at a car called Aston Martin. OK, nothing complicated so far. Fernando Alonso left a company or a car called Alpine to go to Aston Martin. Not that complicated so far. So the open seat, there were 20, right? There were 19 and we're still 19, but we have an open seat at Alpine. Alpine makes an announcement. Hey, we've promoted our reserve driver, basically our backup driver, and he's going to be our driver next year. We're really excited. So, Zach, you wrote it up beautifully, and we're going to you know, have you explain you know, exactly what happened at this point. But all of a sudden, that driver, this new hotshot driver who uh, I think, Zach, did he win Formula 2 last time Last last year he was racing there?
4: He did. He is a former Formula 2 champion.
0: Right. Oscar Piastri, we can call him like a top prospect in the sport. They're like, we're ready to call you up to the big show, kid. Here's your shot. These seats are so hard to get. And Piastri takes to Twitter, unlike anything I've seen in American sports or any sports, and he's like, nah, no thanks, not going to be racing for you next year. So we have an equivalent of like a holdout of a top prospect, which I've never heard of in anything sports. So I'm like, okay, throw my hands up here. Maybe I'm a casual Formula fan. I do not know what's going on. So Zach, I'll turn to you at this point. Okay, so Oscar Piastri, right? I don't know what, what we want to call him the equivalent here, top prospect or something of the sort. But he's saying, I'm I'm basically not going to the team, Alpine, that's controlled my rights. I'm their reserve driver. I worked through their system for many years, climbing the ranks through Formula Two and now to Formula One. What is Piastri's play here? Like, like, where does he go? How are you holding out against the team that controls you? I don't understand that.
4: It's a a tough and interesting situation because it hasn't really occurred before, even in Formula One. So... Piastri, the announcement was made by Alpine without consulting Piastri, which is pissed them off, essentially. They didn't normally, whenever you make announcements of any driver changing, you have, you know, an announcement by the team with a quote from the driver and the team principal, maybe the owner, which is what happened whenever Alonzo moved. With this announcement that Alpine made, they did it apparently without consulting Piastri at all, period, which pissed him off because he's been kind of held in limbo by the team for so long. So by making that public announcement on Twitter, it's kind of showing his frustration and attempting to do that that holdout, essentially. It's essentially trying to get them to come to the bargaining table with him and get more money or get a, a better deal, less less things up in the air and more things kind of ironed out because even now having that announcement, Piastri doesn't know the terms of his contract, how long it's going to be, what his compensation is going to be. And so it's a, it's a, it's an attempt to kind of publicly force Alpine to the bargaining table to kind of get them to a point where they're giving him what he wants
1: and feels that he deserves. So for those of us who aren't, Formula One fans or don't have a, a strong grasp of what's going on. What do you think the, uh, like the American sports equivalent would be of this situation, you know, from the MLB, NBA, NHL, or, uh, or NBA? Yeah, it's, it's tough to kind of draw a direct parallel for
4: sure. Uh, I think the closest would be maybe like a franchise tag in the NFL or, you know, a draft pick who's been drafted by the team before they, they, like for the MLB before they sign the contract, they've been drafted trying to leverage and get a better deal for themselves. What complicates it and makes it a little bit more difficult is Piastri is already contractually obligated and his future is essentially owned by Alpine already. He was their Formula 2 driver. They were in the driver academy. And then in this year off where he's been out of Formula 2 and not in a Formula 1 seat, He's been doing extensive testing for the team and acting as their reserve driver. So his future is already controlled by the team. For him to go anywhere else, because there was some speculation that he was tied to the second Williams seat of Nicholas Latifi, who the team was looking to part ways with, that negotiation would have had to go through Alpine. So it's a very complex situation that's almost unlike anything we really do have in, in the United States, just because of the way that he's kind of already owned by the team and essentially obligated to do whatever they tell or allow him to do.
0: So the the other part of this makes it just kind of bizarre for people that don't follow some, sometimes there are drivers. And again, I tribe to survive, I can't, uh, they don't promote the show, but you know, listen, I'll promote them. I'm happy to like, there's a guy Daniel Ricardo who's one of the more popular guys in the sport. They have something that's kind of unlike, other sports where a driver will announce he's going to race for someone next year, but they'll do it mid-season. So it's like you have a lame duck driver. So in that period of time, you know, understandably, the team doesn't chooses not to share certain details with that driver because, like, hey, it's going to be racing for our competitors next year. So you slowly try to fade them away. So Piastri, I'm sure, you know, with as a member of Alpine, they were saying you're our reserve driver. If there's ever a problem you know, like, you know, with one of the top two guys, we're going to call you up as an emergency driver, right? Or we're viewing you as being a driver of the future. So they're sharing certain things with him that maybe you wouldn't, if this driver doesn't have a future with your team. So that's part of the complicating factor here. I'm sure there was always an understanding from Alpine that, Hey, this guy's, this guy's ready to go. He wants a formula one seat. He's, you know, he's been loyal to us forever. Why wouldn't he? So I'm going to read the, the tweet from Piastri just so people understand the significance of this. Piastri tweets, it has 380,000 likes, and for for reference, he only has 180,000 followers. So that's that's not really that normal to get like, I don't know what version of a ratio that is, but he writes, I understand that, comma, without my agreement, comma, Alpine F1 have put out a press release late this afternoon that I am driving for them next year. This is wrong. And I have not signed a contract with Alpine for 2023. I will not be driving for Alpine next year. So I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm like, you know, Brendan, to the question that you just asked, like, is there an equivalent? And I'm like, I've never heard of a team putting out a statement. Hey, we've signed this guy. We're so excited. And those social media graphics they put up like, congrats and welcome to the team. And then someone putting out a graphic that's like, no, that's a lie. I hate them. I'm not going to be with them next year. So. You know, the, the, the interesting part in all this, and I don't know if there's an answer that anybody will have at this point. Like, what is Piastri's MO? Like, these F1 seats are so hard to come by. You usually don't play that move unless you actually have someone there. It's like, you know, let's say you're, you're trying to get a new job, right? Or you're trying to get a raise from your boss and you're saying like, hey, if you don't give me X amount of salary, I'm going to switch jobs. Okay, fine. Like, you better have that other job to switch to, right? You better have that backup plan or else this plan doesn't make any sense. So my, my guess, and I have no idea... Know, Zach, you're more advised on the business side of Formula One than I am, but just me understanding leverage and you know, I don't know, normal negotiations between two people. Piastri's got something in his his back pocket, whether it's McLaren, whether it's the other seat at Williams, he would not be making the statement without having that in his back pocket. So, certainly an interesting saga. I've just never seen anything like it. So, Zach, I know you're trying to figure out if it's the franchise tag, maybe. It's the equivalent of like, you know, minor league baseball where the team controls the players' rights, but we've never had a player at the minor league system hold out. You know, Brendan, you know, and I were talking about Eli Manning, who refused to get drafted by the San Diego Chargers. He ended up getting drafted by them, but then traded to the to the New York Giants. So you have versions of that, but I, I don't know, there's no version of a trade here. It seems very complicated. So we're in the the summer break of Formula One right now, and all of a sudden, like, the biggest sports law story is happening at a time when things have calmed down. Not, not a shock. Same thing that's happening in our NFL circles. We have stopped play, but it's never been busier. Zach, final thoughts on this? Anything that we have not discussed that, that needs to be brought up here?
4: It's just really, really tough to kind of think of his his actual play here. They, they do contractually control where he goes, which is the biggest thing. And But making the announcement without the driver's permission has obviously offended Piastri and and complicated this whole situation. The biggest questions moving forward aren't whether he'll be racing for, for Alpine next year. I don't, I don't think at this point, Alpine has confirmed even today that they have the contractual right to sign him first before they give the option for him to go anyone, go anywhere else. And they've done that, but they've done that without a formal contract in place as Piastri has been forced into this gray area by the Alonzo holdout and everything taking so long so the real question going forward and what's going to be interesting to see unfold is Piastri and Alpine going to smooth things out or is it going to be a good long-term place for him or is he this going to sour him on the team he's going to mail it in until the team is willing to let him go somewhere else where he's going to be more happy or gets that money he wants. So it's definitely a tough and interesting and unique situation from the perspective of sports here in the United States and going forward, it's a really an uncharted territory, even for formula one. So going to be very interesting to see how this unfolds and the legal implications of this quote unquote deal that they have with them.
0: Well, Zach, if we do have any lawsuits that do result here, we'll, we will give you a ring. We are a podcast that talked a lot about player empowerment. And we might be in the driver empowerment era. Uh, listen, if, if they only would have told him, they were calling him up, and maybe that would have solved everything. I'm not sure I buy that from the tweet, but we shall see. Zach, an absolute pleasure having you on. Definitely check out Zach's piece up on the website right now. It is Alonzo's move to Aston Martin and its impact on the Formula One driver market. And yeah, Zach, look forward to having you on in the future.
4: I'll look forward to it as well. Thanks so much for having me on, guys.
0: So that was Zach Bryson. You can find him on our website, conductdetrimental.com. On social media, he is at Zachary S. Bryson. So maybe at a later point in time we're going to bring Zach on to talk about Ferrari completely botching the uh the driver's championship this year, the constructors' championship. A little bit of uh intentional infliction of emotional distress with some of the racing decisions that they have made. Listen, Brendan, I'm on looking at you. I, I haven't forgotten about your promise here. One episode of Drive to Survive. That's all I want from you. Just one.
1: All right. Is that a deal? I'm all, I'm all in for that. That's a deal.
0: I don't know if there's any consideration involved here. You will learn that when you uh... are. <laughs> By the way, are, are we are you taking the LSAT soon or are you just a, a wannabe pre-law student?
1: I take it a week from Friday. You so uh, we're, from Friday. We're, we're getting down. We're getting we're getting down to the nitty-gritty there.
0: I think it's a good spot here. Brandon, to the extent that you do go to law school, are you, you know what I'm about to say here? Do you know who I'm about to talk about?
1: Oh yes. Neems bar of you, of course. I'm a I'm a dedicated listener.
0: Well, listen, this, this is what we do. We start people early on the Themis Bar Review gospel and we work you up. So that, that's how it works. So Brandon, when, if and when you do go to law school, and I hope that you do, I also hope that you take my advice and listen to Drive to Survive. Check out Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the galaxy and top bar prep company associated with the top sports law podcast in the universe. How about that? So we have the top bar prep company in the galaxy, top sports law podcast in the universe. It's like a little shake and bake action. Okay. Yeah. Conduct detrimental. You can use our code. If you sign up, you will get a, uh, a nice discount or just Hit me up and I will speak to my friends over at Themis and they will give you a discount if you don't understand fancy promo codes. Okay, so let us move on to the breaking news of today. I feel like every day is a new breaking news story. You know, the episode, uh, our last episode was like the Sean Watson, it was the Stephen Ross Miami Dolphin stuff. And now all of a sudden, like, you know, we're about to record this episode and I have five people text me simultaneously PGA antitrust lawsuit. And I'm like, can we just have like a day when there's like no crazy sports law content? Like, maybe a day possible. But, you know, that's what we're here for. So our man, John Nucci, has been talking about this potential Saudi arabia Live PGA conflict for many, many months before Play started. And uh, if you listen, go back in our archives. You know, we, we predicted that Phil Mickelson would be at the charge of one of these lawsuits. Wouldn't you know, Phil Mickelson is one of 10 live golfers suing the PGA Tour over their suspensions, the legality. Ugh, OK, well, we, we have the complaint in hand. We are going to break it down with friend of the show and recent graduate of Penn State University School of Law, that is John Nucci. Okay, we are joined by John Nucci, who has become our resident golf law expert. John, how's it going, my friend? Good, now How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So I will ask you about the bar after this, so we have not spoken uh, since you have taken it. But the breaking news upon us, the PGA Tour slapped with an antitrust lawsuit from 11 golfers, I'll read them off. Phil Mickelson, Taylor Gooch, Bryson DeChambeau, Hudson Swafford, Matt Jones, Abraham Answer, Carlos Ortiz, Ian Poulter, Pat Perez, Jason Okrak, Peter Yulian. So certainly the headliners in this are Phil, Poulter, and DeChambeau. Now, John, you've had an opportunity to go through the complaint in its entirety. I'm gonna give you the floor, initial impressions.
5: Initially, I mean, this is something that we've expected for quite a while. I know we have talked about it in the past, at least as far back as January. It's something that uh, I think all of us expected when the, especially when the PGA was uh, discussing threats and suspensions and bans. I mean, we'll see where we go from here. Headliners, obviously, Phil is in this along with Bryson. Those are a couple of guys that have been at the forefront here. Uh, I think kind of notable that uh, both Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson are not uh, listed as plaintiffs. Uh, So that's also something interesting.
0: I'll tell you my initial impressions. uh, Some big firepower, the law firms representing the golfers involved. Gibson Dunn is the headliner, Quinn Emanuel and Baker McKenzie. So they're coming out guns a blazing. These are not some no-name law firms that are behind this. So, you know, John, uh, you and I have been speaking about this for a while. I think you were the first one on our show to point out that a lawsuit here was almost inevitable, right? So for as long as, you know, you and I, uh, and I'm sure a lot of other legal experts were saying this was going to happen... You had the big firms lining up behind the scenes. So yes, it's not surprising that Phil is involved because we've known that Phil was questioning the power dynamic with the PGA Tour for some amount of time. Let's talk about just on its face. One thing that I found interesting that, I don't know, it, with respect to the live golfers, certainly they're not the most popular guys uh, in golf right now. Something that they demanded, right? They demanded a jury trial, which, you know, if you do get to the trial phase, something interesting, you're going to have to speak in front of people that m- you might not be the most sympathetic people. So sometimes right? You might want to request a bench trial. Here we have a jury trial, just interesting, right? Now the question I had for you, John, you're, you're a much bigger golfer than I am. I've become a golfing fan in the sports betting era. Shout out to our New York legislators. You know, my, my question for you, right? We, how does the timing of this plan, aren't we getting close to like the PGA playoffs here? Like how does, how does the timing of the lawsuit factor in?
5: Yeah. So that's something that's uh, also pretty interesting. The suspensions were originally announced while well, they, they've, they've at least had notice of potential suspensions for quite a while. Uh, I think the original suspensions were announced June 9th. So it is quite interesting that they're now that, uh, you know, this lawsuit is filed on August 3rd. I believe it's only about five. The FedEx Cup starts August 8th, uh, which is next week. So it's kind of interesting that they chose now to suddenly file this lawsuit and now uh, claim a lot of urgency. And that, uh, you know, so we'll see, we'll see how that shakes out. I know that the PGA Tour actually mentioned, uh, at least in the memo, that the live golfers or the Saudi golfers should not be allowed to be rewarded uh, for basically delaying this filing, uh, which is clearly uh,
0: intentional. So here's the big one. And if we didn't address it, our apologies. The, the big lead here, right? The first relief request is to stay and enjoin the PGA Tour's suspension and sanctions imposed upon the plaintiff. So the main relief sought here. Is to allow these live golfers to compete in both tours simultaneously, right? Um, that's that's the main cause of relief here. So, John, you uh I was going through your Twitter feed, you were firing off a couple of these. So, you know, John, John, you're a good follow up for this stuff, you're usually on the ball. And part of this complaint, and I'm I'm gonna give you the floor in a minute, but it's like they say that the PGA's actions have cost these golfers money now. Throw that out the window with respect to a guy like Phil Mickelson, was making reportedly in excess of $100 million from uh, his commitment to live. Uh, I think you could throw that out with respect to Bryson DeChambeau. Now, how much do we know about what the other nine golfers in that lawsuit made? Ian Poulter's a fairly big name. Taylor Gooch, I guess, is a decent name. But I don't know, John, do we know the earnings of those other nine guys? from uh, So
5: not, not all of them. I know that it was reported at least that Poulter was uh, being offered somewhere in the realm of about $25 million. I would imagine Gooch is probably more than that, given that he's younger. I mean, I know Poulter has a bigger name, but Gooch is a younger golfer, uh, at least at this stage of their careers, is is far more competitive. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was in that arena as well. It would be hard for us, for me, to believe that anybody uh, that signed up with Liv is making uh, basically losing money by not being able to play in the FedEx Cup playoff. I, you know, the the complaint mentions that the tour has has harmed the career. Years and livelihoods of these golfers. Um, some of them, as you mentioned, are making $200 million. You know, uh, it seems to be pretty inconsistent. I mean, they they also claim that they, part of the reason at least that they broke away initially is because, you know, the tour schedule is so burdensome uh, and that they have to play 15 events to be able to call, qual- you know, 15 minimum events. The live tour is scheduled for 14 events next year. As far as I know, I would be surprised if any of those guys were not able to, uh, you know, just pick and choose their events. They're going to have to play all 14. Uh, so just a lot of inconsistencies. I don't think any of them are going to be harmed financially or have not. In fact, they've clearly made out from this. Uh, so a lot of the complaints, I think, are, are, are tough to wrap my head around.
0: Okay, a little bit of breaking news coming across our ticker just happens to be in the exact same realm that we were talking about. People were wondering where Phil Mickelson was on the PGA, why he wasn't competing in certain events. People said maybe it was voluntary, maybe it was a mutual walk away looks like, uh, at least reports are coming out now, I think it was the Wall Street Journal that reported this, but that Phil was actually suspended by the PGA Tour in March of 2022. That was a one-year suspension until 2023, and extended until March of 2024 after he competed in the first Live event. So Phil is at the forefront of this lawsuit. He was at the forefront of criticism of the PGA Tour while also criticizing this, the Saudi government you know, from behind the scenes. So Phil is kind of uh, talking out of both sides of his mouth to some extent, but you know, we've we've said it on our show, John. You've been on. We've been talking about live golf. I think you know three, four times you and I together in the show. Uh, we've always said, Phil, whatever lawsuit that file that, that follows here, Phil Mickelson's going to be at the forefront of it. And the headlines coming out, to so no you know no surprise, Phil Mickelson and ten other golfers. So Phil seems to be the first player suspended by the PGA Tour. And uh, you know now they're they're feeling uh, Phil's wrath, so to speak. And, and again, no shortage of law firm firepower. In all of this John, any additional thoughts, comments on this breaking lawsuit, which very well might change the face of golf forever?
5: Yeah, uh, I think it is interesting that he was suspended back in March. He was uh, I thought it was maybe maybe kind of obvious at that point. He was missing some tournaments that maybe he wouldn't have missed, although it is interesting that he missed the ma- uh, the Masters at that point, because as we've discussed before, they are not affiliated or at least not directly run by the PGA Tour. He did skip the Masters this year. So I'm not sure if perhaps Augusta National also decided to suspend him maybe a little bit under the radar there. But yeah, we'll see what happens here. There is no shortage of complaints. It's a 105-page complaint. I think a lot of it, there's a lot of inconsistencies with it. But obviously, as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, high-powered legal minds behind it. So we'll see where it goes from here.
0: I guess I have one little note. Sometimes I hear little things, you know. I'm not quite at the level of like Woj bombs and Lust bombs, but don't laugh. Lust bomb could be a thing at some point in time. We, we will, we will see. So I, I do know someone associated with the live tour who under the radar, and I won't, I won't, uh, you know, shout him out, but said that maybe the impetus of this lawsuit that for the lesser moneyed guys, right? Not Phil Mickelson, not Phil, not Bryson that they do care about the money that they could potentially earn from the PGA tour. So that's what I'm hearing. So obviously not, not everyone associated with live have had their numbers reported, or I think a story this week, speaking of just related news on the the live front, tiger was reportedly offered 700 million. We can say reportedly, but that's now been confirmed by Greg Norman over at the live tour. So as much of those, those huge numbers are being kind of reported floated out there once upon a time it was reported quote unquote that tiger was offered 1 billion dollars so maybe that doesn't seem like such a large gap 700 million and a billion dollars but i don't know it's off by 30% it's off by 300 million so let's see maybe these lesser money golfers really are getting you know relatively small amounts as compared to the pga tour and there's also this point you know that other people have raised that maybe what Live is angling for is something that you know, the American Basketball Association angled for, United States Football League angled for once upon a time, cause as much disruption as you can, and then force a merger as in between the two leagues. So there's also a world where these other Live golfers, these lesser money Live golfers, weren't promised such huge sums of money, but they thought they could get a double payment, right? Except some amount of money from Live and gambling on a, a very early merger between the two leagues. I don't know if that's going to happen but there's also a world where these golfers didn't get that much money but right they did get less amount of uh, tour events per year they did get the private plane and maybe they're just banking on a very quick merger so that that also wouldn't shock me and the ability to play in both events live events and PGA tour events maybe that you know makes sense and maybe it's not just a this grandstanding by Phil maybe there is a real dollars and cents argument for some of these lesser money golfers just my my two cents from what I'm hearing my little, my little birds on the live side.
5: Yeah, I that's certainly possible. I think it was very clear, at least the PGA stance and Jay Monahan stance, before the suspensions were handed down, of what would happen if these guys decided to go play in, in the live golf series. At the time, the PGA distinguished the two, uh, at least on the, the competing events release. So a, a big part of this is that the PGA typically grants competing event releases a couple per year. Uh, they distinguish it on the basis of the live golf series is a full new uh, series of at least eight events that are in the United States, not like a one-off event that someone's going to play and, you know, a different tour in Asia. Um, So I don't think these guys, if that's their claim, that they should really be surprised that the PGA has taken this stance. It was very clear from the start that this is what the PGA was going to do. And the PGA feels that they have the, uh, they have the legal authority uh, to do so.
0: Okay, we will end our conversation here. John, congrats on finishing the bar and always a pleasure to have you on the show, my friend.
5: Thank you, I appreciate it.
0: So that was John Nucci. He is on Twitter at jnucci23. So while we were recording the podcast, news broke that the NFL is appealing the Deshaun Watson suspension. So the NFLPA, I believe, will have three days to respond. I said it on this show. I've said it on Twitter two, three days ago, I say when I'm right, I say when I'm wrong. I said I would be absolutely shocked if the NFL did not appeal this, because again, the optics were that the NFL lost, right? Yes, they won all three elements of their case, right? They proved that there was sexual assault, they proved that someone was placed in grave danger, right? And they proved that the, you know, integrity of the shield was compromised. But that said, the punishment handed out by Judge Robinson was six games. And according to multiple reports, That six games was something that Watson was willing to accept in terms of his settlement, between a six and eight games. So while the NFL technically won, the Judge Robinson felt that the NFL satisfied their burden. She picked a number of the games that Watson was okay with. So is it a shock that the NFL appealed? No, but we weighed the pros and cons in our last episode, and definitely haven't listened to it. Go back, but not a shock, right? What is interesting, right? And, And what's coming out here? is that Watson was offered, it's coming out today, that Watson was offered a 12-game suspension, and he would have to pay, I think it was a $10 million fine. So he could have taken that and just gone home, it's over, settlement, no decision from Judge Robinson. But Watson was banking on two things. He was banking on Judge Robinson issuing a lower number than 12 games and a lower amount of money. He got that part right. Six-game suspension, no fine. He was banking on the other part, though. Banking on the part that the NFL would not appeal this to guess who to Roger Goodell. Roger Goodell can either take it himself or give it to someone else to, to hear the appeal. But it's someone that Roger Goodell handpicked. So take a guess on what, what way that person's going to decide. Right. So maybe a misstep on on Watson's part, banking on those two things to occur, that he'd get a decision from Robinson. And this is kind of a, a parlay for our sports betting fans. And that the NFL would not appeal. That's why the NFL put out NFLPA put out that statement on Sunday saying we're not appealing and we implore the NFL not to appeal as well. That was a hope and a prayer. And that that part, you know, turned out not to be true. The NFL is appealing this and it's going to go up. Roger Goodell is going to make his decision on if he wants to hear it as commissioner or if he's going to designate it to someone else. So that's the news. Our next episode, uh, I'm going to try to get Wallach on. I know he's dealing with some travel issues, but next episode, we're going to hopefully get Wallach on, but we're going to analyze all levels of this appeal. We're going to get the NFL PA's statement uh, and their, their legal submission. I think on Monday. So going to have a lot to talk about, but we'll put that episode in the books. I want to big uh, give a big thank you to Brendan Bell for joining me to break down all aspects of the case. Obviously to Jason Stoll and Roxy for their help with the College Football Players Association story. Zach Bryson, and of course, John Nucci. I am Dan Lust. As always, I'm signing off for myself, Dan Wallach, and our entire family over at Conic Detrimental. Always a pleasure to break it down with you. This has been a nonstop week of sports law stories. All good and... I don't know. I don't know what to say. We live, breathe, and eat sports law. So this is, uh, you know, like kid in a candy store type stuff. So a pleasure to break it down. Thank you for joining us each and every week. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Conic kind of